I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I am uh, joined today by my obstinate cat. <laughs> I'll show you guys. <laughs> she does not want to get out of the way. <laughs> um, I think I should have fed her before uh, starting the stream today. So, good to see you guys. We're going to talk about um, some of the evidence that uh, the the original proclaimers of the resurrection, the eyewitnesses of, of Jesus' resurrection, actually did genuinely believe what they were saying was true about Jesus, about him rising from the dead. And so um, that's really why this matters. So we're asking, uh, were the apostles really willing to die on the conviction that they had really seen Jesus bodily alive after his death? That's the question. It matters because one of the things you can say against the resurrection is the idea that um, the apostles were, were lying. Here, let me see if I can get my microphone past my cat. I want you guys to be able to hear me pretty good. Um, Anyways, sorry. She was just making lots of noise, so I'm just like going to let her sit where she wants for now. Um, she's a cat, not a dog. You know what I mean. So we're going to talk about um, specific apostles. We'll talk um, about Peter. We'll talk a little bit about Paul. And we'll talk about James, the brother of Jesus. And I want to give full credit to where credit's due. This is a lot of the content I'm getting today is coming from The Fate of the Apostles, a wildly expensive book written by Sean McDowell. Um, it's expensive because it's printed by an academic press and... Um, they make things expensive for I'm sure they have their reasons at any rate uh, I do recommend it if you can afford to get it um, I'm able to get it because of the YouTube uh, ad money that comes in has allowed me to actually purchase books that cost more than three dollars which has been nice now um, I'm going to try to cover not only some of the sort of data from the first century but I'm gonna try to cover objections along the way so welcome if you're joining me for the first time uh, my name is Mike Winger I am a pastor in uh, Southern California who does apologetics and theology stuff on YouTube and um, I, uh, I usually take Q&A at the end. So if, if I can get through this content quick enough, uh, maybe I will take questions at the end of this live stream from you guys in the live chat and we'll try to answer those objections. Especially, I like questions that are on the topic, but I am open to other questions as well. Just know I'm not able, able to answer all the questions typically. So again, I'm plugging. Sean McDowell's The Fate of the Apostles, definitely worth getting. I'm looking to see if I can get him on the YouTube channel for an interview where he can share some of this content. Um, and maybe even, I don't know, a little debate, a little friendly debate with, with someone from the skeptics community who might disagree with his, his findings. I think that would be great. Um, okay, let me first establish this, that in the early church, there was general persecution. That's the first thing I want to establish. I want to tell you there was just general persecution. Persecution was a reality for Christians. And when you signed up to be a Christian, you were signing up knowing full well it would cost you potentially your life, your friends, your family, that this was just normal status quo for first century, not just second or third, but first century Christians. That's that's the first thing I want to establish. So I'm going to go to 109 AD, 109 AD, and I'm going to quote to you a guy named Tacitus. Tacitus is a Roman historian, not a Christian, not even, not even nice to Christians for that matter. Um, and he writes the following about uh, early early Christians during the sort of second second generation Christianity uh, in 109 AD. And listen to this report from Tacitus. Listen to the way he characterizes Christians. By the way, Tacitus is considered one of the better Roman historians, one of the best historians that we have. And he says, consequently, to get rid of the report, okay, let me pause and explain the details. Um, Emperor Nero, it seems, historically had had lit this, the, the Caesar of Rome. He, he had lit on fire a section of Rome so that he could destroy that and then build what he wanted there. Well, the rumor was going around that it was Nero who did it, and he wanted to get rid of that rumor. He didn't want to be blamed for the fire, so here's what happened. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procur procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Now, there's more to read there, but I just want to like just absorb what we've read so far. He tells about Christians, and now some will argue because he'll use the term crest, crestus with, a, with a, an, an epsilon or an E instead of an I, 
um, for Christ. He says Christus actually in, in one of the copies. Um, but these were interchangeable terms that both meant Christ back in the day. There wasn't standardized spelling like this. So the, that godless engineer has a whole video on that. And he's utterly wrong. That's just the facts of reality. Um, so if, if you've heard that stuff, just ignore it, please. Um, but he, he not only mentions Christians, but mentions that they came from someone who is called Christ and that it started in Judea. These are just confirming facts of history about Christianity and that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And you know, this wasn't written by Christians. He calls it a most mischievous superstition. He says it's, a, it's, it's evil. He calls it evil. Um, and then he says that it flourished in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So this is like not... If you're a Christian, you're not writing this, you know, to like make yourself look good. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think, and I don't think they're writing it thinking 2000 years from now, you know, future historians and textual critics will be examining this work. We don't want them to think that we wrote it. Let's call ourselves evil. Like, I don't think this is at all reasonable. Um, I'll read on. Here's what he says next. Um, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city or setting the city on fire, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn apart by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft in a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. This is from Tacitus, The Annals, and um, you're welcome to look it up on your own. All this stuff is, is, is av freely available online as well, which is nice. Here's the thing. Um... Tacitus, he's, he's only recording this because he's trying to record the events of Rome and the, the things that were going on at the time. He's not saying anything favorable or positive about Christians. He even has to kind of apologize for saying something nice about them. He's like, hey, they did deserve these extreme punishments, but people started to feel bad for them, you know, because the Christians were suffering so terribly. So this was like the reality for the church shortly after the time of the apostles was intense persecution. Um, I'll, I'll give you another quote. Uh, this is uh, another reference. Um, I won't read the whole letter because it's just very long. But um, Pliny, who was a Roman governor, uh, he's he's writing to Trajan, the emperor, and they're going back and forth. This is about 112 AD. And Pliny says that he has found these Christians. I don't know if you guys can hear that. But hold on one second. There we go. My cat. So... Um, Pliny, uh, he's writing to Trajan and he's, he's saying, you know, hey, when I find Christians, I interrogate them. Um, if they don't recant, I kill them. Um, if they recant, if they give up the name of Jesus, then I'll let them go. As long as they curse Jesus and they burn incense to our gods. Now, later, Trajan writes back to Pliny and he says basically, yeah, go ahead and, and do that. You know, if they recant, let them go. Um, that, now, there's a lot more details than that. But the, the, the basic idea is that there was institutionalized persecution against Christians from very early on. That's the basic idea. And it's kind of a big deal. Now, some people would say, well, Mike, that's 109, that's 112 AD. I mean, you know, that's way after the apostles' time. So that doesn't count. And I'm like, but you see, Romans are Romans. Like, it's not like their culture changed that much in 50 years that all of a sudden they're not going to, you know, have the same attitude towards Christians. See, Christians wouldn't burn incense to their gods. The Romans saw this as a threat to their well-being because they thought their gods were protecting them. So they would attack the Christians. You're going to, you know, when, when there's a flood, we're going to blame those Christians. They're not burning incense to the gods. What are they doing? So this is like just the normal response to Christianity. We should expect it to be happening in the first century as well as the early second here. Um, there's other stuff I could share with you there, but I'll, let me go even back further. Let's go to the first century. Let's go to the time of Jesus. In the very Gospels, Jesus himself talks about how general persecution is going to happen in the church. This is like an expected thing. In Mark 13... Oh, actually, I can bring it up for you. Just a second. I'm going to bring up some scriptures for you guys to be able to look at and read along with me. Um, in Mark 13, we read about uh, one of Jesus's like warnings where he's kind of telling people to watch out. 
that um, that there's going to be persecutions coming. And if you, and if you're if you're familiar with the Bible, this shouldn't be a surprise to you to find out that. Like, you can throw a rock at the Bible. I don't recommend throwing rocks at the Bible. I'm not sure why I picked that illustration. But if you could throw a rock at the Bible and you're going to hit a passage dealing with persecution. And, um, and so here we are, Mark 13, 9. Jesus says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So Jesus tells them straight up, like, you're going to suffer great, terrible things uh, institutionally. So now some are who are like super skeptics, and I, I find that sometimes th- those who are skeptical towards Christianity, it's as though they need no reason to validate disbelieving things. They only need reasons to validate believing things, but they don't realize that disbelief is like itself involves believing things. Anyway, whole different video there. Um, but even if you were to say, I think this was written after the fact. I don't think Jesus ever said ever said those things. Like if even if you said all that. You would then just say, well, they wrote this after the fact because they were being beaten in synagogues and they were standing before governors and kings and they were being killed. Um, so then this is evidence for just sort of church-wide persecution and that those who would bear the name and proclaim Christ were going to be suffering for him. Uh, Matthew 10 speaks of this as well. Um, in John 15, I'm going to give you guys tons of scripture, tons of different early attestation of uh, persecution. Uh, today, so John fifteen eighteen, it says, um, "If the world hates you, know that it it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you." Then he he just goes on. He's like, "If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you." He he's trying to make it clear, Jesus, to his disciples, "You're going to suffer the kind of stuff I suffer." Well, you know what Jesus suffered, the death penalty, and he's anticipating that they will suffer the same thing. So even if you wrongly believe that Jesus didn't say this and it was written later by other people, then it's written in response to persecution to tell Christians to buck up and be ready because they're going to have to die for these things. So you can't get away from the fact that it's about uh, persecution. I can give you actually a lot of other scriptures, uh, a lot of other places, multiple attestation from different sources. Um, and then I'll respond to uh, For the Bible Tells Me So, which is something I've been hearing a lot recently. Someone dismissed an entire video of mine with the phrase For the Bible Tells Me So, which is um, not wise. Matthew twenty three thirty four. he says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that this is saying, hey, you are, you are uh, going to be persecuting. It's going to be the regular thing for Christians to experience. That's what the first century records are saying. Um, in fact, Jesus talks about people getting kicked out of, uh, excuse me, the Gospels. John in particular talks about people getting kicked out of the synagogue just for proclaiming the name of Christ. This is interesting. Remember when Jesus healed a blind man in John chapter 9? He heals this man born blind and they ask his parents, hey, who, who healed him? Who did this? And his parents don't want to say. So verse 22, he says, um, uh, there, 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 there it is. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ or confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Or if anyone says this Jesus person is the Messiah, we'll kick him out of the synagogue. So then they said, you know, oh, he's of age, ask him. Well, then in uh, the same chapter in verse 34, we read, um, after he declares that it was Jesus who did this stuff, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. So they blame his blindness on being born in sin, and then they kick him out of the synagogue. And um, uh, wrong on two counts, by the way. And so what is, this, what is this saying? This is saying that there was persecution even during the ministry of Christ. It got much worse at the end of the ministry where they actually killed Jesus, and then his disciples are fleeing and running and hiding. And then after they start proclaiming the resurrection of Christ... Jesus' message only became more offensive to the Jews. To, well, not, I shouldn't say the Jews, because the early church was Jews. So what I'm really meaning is he's, his message became more offensive to the Jews who did not receive him. Those ones, the ones who rejected the message of the Messiah. They became more offensive and more um, problematic. So this is what Jesus was saying. Now, the book of Acts, oh, it's just too much information for me to take you through the book of Acts. Um, read the book of Acts. Suffering and persecution is is central in the in the book of Acts. It goes throughout the whole book. I mean, Paul, whole, his whole mission when he was Saul is, I'm going around just to systematically persecute Christians. It's not enough to persecute them in, in Jerusalem. I'll go wherever I can find them. 
when Paul later becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, he's followed around by those who are persecuting him. There's actually Jewish assassins who vow to kill him. And um, yeah, th this is just consistent throughout the, the record. In the book of Acts, even if you think it's not historically reliable, which it really is, like it, it, it that'll be in future video, right? It's, it's very historically reliable. But even if you don't think that, it's not like you can just casually throw out the whole, you know, gathering of New Testament documents because it's the Bible. I mean, it's not automatically wrong because it's in the Bible, is it? I mean, if that's your mentality, then what you have is a religious view, not a historical view of things. If you look at it just sort of saying, you know, what, what can we learn from this uh, as someone who's who's not going to take it at face value, but just kind of read the text and go, what what could have given rise to such a document? Well, the real persecution of the early church is what could have given rise to it. Suffering is central, not just in the Gospels, not just in Acts, but throughout all the epistles as well. I mean, we have a group of epistles we call the prison epistles because Paul wrote them while in prison. And he encourages others to suffer for Christ the way he's suffering for Christ. He talks about how he's not holding his life dear to himself and all this stuff. It just goes on and on. In Romans 8, we read that we're more than conquerors, even though people would kill us and destroy us as Christians. This is... This is being taught to Christians because it was so needful. Peter writes in 1 Peter, don't even be surprised when people come after you like this. In Revelation, the letters to the churches, he's like telling them, hey, Smyrna, yeah, you're, you're being killed, but, but, but stay faithful until death. So persecution was a church-wide thing for early Christians. It didn't just arise later in the first or second century. It consistently happened throughout. Um, I mean, how much, how much evidence do you really need for this? Christian persecution is central to the theme of the New Testament consistently in various works from various authors written in different locations at different times where they casually mention just or basically the writings are rising from the from the environment where Christians are being greatly persecuted for what they believe to deny this is to not deal fairly with the evidence at hand to say Mike everything you said doesn't count because you're saying for the Bible tells me so is only to tap into people's hatred of the Bible as a way of keeping them from thinking about these historical documents. And that's not wise. Um, now we're going to talk about three people in particular, because I don't just want to say that the early church in general suffered persecution. I want to say that the apostles, or I should say rather, not the, just the apostles, although these are all apostles, but that, that the eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection were sincere about their claims. And the way they prove their sincerity is they were willing to suffer and die for those claims. It proves you really think the things you're saying when you're willing to die over those things. So we're going to talk about Peter, James, and Paul. Those are the three guys we're going to talk about. Um, they're all resurrection witnesses. And they're central, if you're like me, someone who wants to present a case for the resurrection. I don't need every single person who says they saw Jesus to die a martyr's death. But I, I really would like for my central witnesses, Peter, uh, James, the brother of Jesus and Paul, the apostle. I like these guys to have like really good, you know, reasoning and support for the idea that they weren't lying about things. And that's pretty much what I'm offering today. Here's why, you know, they weren't lying. Okay. Um, uh, Gary Habermas, uh, he says, um, and he is the guy, he, he, I mean, he is, I, I smile because sometimes as I'm talking out loud, I, I can think of how what I'm saying would be received by somebody who's been really uh, it, you know, educated amongst the skeptic community. And when I say the name Habermas, it's ad hominem attacks against this man, who's actually a good scholar, who's actually the premier scholar in, in, in his field, his specific field dealing with the resurrection evidence. And um, anyway, but Habermas, he says, early data report the martyrdoms of at least Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. Few scholars doubt this. One of Habermas's, you know, specialties is that he reads the scholarship in different languages um, across the spectrum. And he just tries to gather what's the, you know, what do the scholars think? This, this guy over here, that guy over there, and just report, you know, what the consensus is on different issues. And he says, this is, there's consensus on this. Few, few scholars will doubt this. So let's look now at some of the reasons why few scholars doubt this. Let's start with Peter. Um, I won't be getting into as much Paul stuff just because I didn't have the time to prepare it all. But also this video would just get really long if I shared everything today. Maybe I can get Sean McDowell on here and he can talk about some of this stuff. That would be really awesome. Um, Sean McDowell, dear Sean, you <laughs> come on my, my channel. All right. Um, so biblical sources. Okay, I want to start with biblical sources. Then we'll look at extra biblical sources. Biblical sources, we'll look first at John chapter 21. 
John 21, verse 18. This, uh, no matter how you take it, whether you, if you believe the Bible is inspired, I don't have to con- convince you about this. If you, if you don't believe the Bible is inspired yet, and hopefully you will um, sometime soon, um, then you can still take this as, as evidence that uh, Peter was martyred. And I'll explain why. In John 21, verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, the context of this is actually even offers more support for the interpretation I'm about to give you. But it is clear in verse 19 that the author of John is saying, it's very clear. He's saying, hey, these, this statement from Jesus was about how Peter would die. Okay, so he's going he's gonna to be killed. He's going to be led to some death that involves a stretching out of his hands. There's debate on whether this was crucifixion or that he was uh, burned. You know, maybe he was strapped to a pole and burned in a fire. There's debate over that. I don't know. It doesn't actually matter because the question is, was he willing to die for the things he said were true? That's the question. And here, John 21, if you take it from a Christian perspective, you're saying, hey, Jesus was predicting that Peter would die a martyr's death. If you take it from a non-Christian perspective, if you're, I should say, um, a, a not believing the Bible is inspired, you know, then you would, you would say, well, how could Jesus predict Peter's death? Okay, well, maybe, maybe it was written after the fact, totally ad hoc. You have no reason to think it was written after the fact, but let's say that it was written after the fact. Well, it was only written because Peter died that way. So it's like you're stuck. You're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either position you take gives you Peter's martyrdom for his uh, belief in Christ. Um, also, John, if you look at the Gospel of John in more detail, we realize Jesus said he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And in this passage in John 21, he's telling Peter to shepherd the people of God, right? Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So he's telling him, feed the sheep. And guess what? You're going to follow me. That's what it says there uh, in verse 19. So the whole like context of everything is about how he's going to, He's going to be like Jesus, uh, including in his death. Even if you think it was not uh, predicted, you still have to say what gave rise to this was an actual event relating to the martyrdom of Peter. In John thirteen thirty six, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And this is, by the way, John 13, it seems like we're, we're early in the book of John, but we're in, we're in the last week of the life of Jesus already by John 13. We're very close to the death of Christ. Uh, John spends a great deal of time around the, uh, the death of Jesus. Um, so John 13, uh, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. Um, and he's talking about his death very clearly in the text. Peter says, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So he's like, I'm going to go lay my life down. I'm going to die. Peter seems to understand something like about this. It says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. He denies him three times. Then Jesus restores him in the later passage in John that we already read. Um, Again, evidence for the martyrdom of Peter. One more passage from the New Testament. I'll go to 2 Peter 1.12. 2 Peter 1.12. Peter, writing this book, says, Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that put the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So he's like, I'm going to die. So I'm writing you so that you will have a memory of the things that I'm teaching. So Peter knows he's going to die in this passage. And he even refers to what Jesus made clear to him. This is connecting it, um, it seems, to the, uh, the rest of the New Testament to John. Pretty interesting stuff. Now, here, here's, here's how the skeptic would respond. If, if you're in the live chat and you're there, you know it. They would say that Second Peter is not written by Peter, that it was forged. Thank you, Bart Ehrman, for, for, doing, for doing that to everybody. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't just Bart Ehrman, but... Um, He's helped popularize the idea that that this book was just forged. Now, I disagree, and maybe one day I'll be able to produce a video teaching why I think that that's not valuable and valid. But here's the thing. If you even assumed 2 Peter was forged, you can't get away from the martyrdom of Peter. Because you would just think, oh, it was written as a result of Peter's martyrdom. Because he really did die like that. So then that's why the author wrote it in there that way. And that is the general view of of scholarship, or so I understand. Now I'm going to give you some extra biblical sources. 
I might be able to pull them up on the screen. Let me see if I can because um, it's a little bit nicer if you can actually read these things. So if you guys can be patient with me, by the way, thanks for joining me. Again, if you're in the live chat, um, you're welcome to uh, to uh, put your questions in there and I'll try to answer those later. Um, but to Peter now, I'll be doing Paul briefly and then we'll look at James, the brother of Jesus, a lot because I think there's some really cool information there people aren't aware of. Um, so let's see. This might be the one. Because I'm, I'm going to see if I can grab this and put it on your screen. Um, I would have prepared it earlier, but I was just running out of time, to be honest. Okay, here we go. Here's First Clement. This is written around 95, 97 AD. So this is a first century document. Um, that's not a, like a controversial issue. Some people think it was actually earlier than that. And he says this about the fate of the apostles. He says, let us take the noble examples of our own generation. Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most just pillars of the church were persecuted and came even unto death. Did you catch that? They came even unto death. Let us place before our eyes the good apostles. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two, but many labors, and at last, having delivered his testimony, departed unto the place of glory due to him. He's, he's going to mention Paul here. I'll read this because we'll talk about Paul next. But through envy, Paul too showed by example the prize that is given to patience. Seven times he was cast into chains. He was banished. He was stoned, having become a herald both in the east and in the west. He obtained the noble renown due to his faith. And having preached righteousness to the whole world, and having come to the extremity of the west, and having borne witness before rulers, he departed at length out of the world and went to the holy place, having become the greatest example of patience. So what we're getting there from Clement um, is that there's, there's, he's not even trying to teach you that this is what Jesus or what uh, Peter or Paul did, right? Think about this. He's not building a case for the martyrdom of these guys. He's drawing from common memory. Everybody already, everybody knows about this as far as Clement's concerned. Everybody knows Peter and Paul both suffered and died for the things that they believe to be true. And so he taps into that to make his case. Now, some respond to this some skeptics uh, in fact there's uh, there's one lady in particular um i think her name uh, candida moss should i have it written down but i uh, i think it's candida moss a scholar who tried to write a book that christians just had a persecution complex um but i don't think it deals fairly with the actual evidence um so some would say this phrase suffered unto death um and maybe maybe she would is not a reference to martyrdom um we just uh we, we just have a simple answer for this. There's actually, the phrase suffered unto death is a reference to martyrdom because we have a, um, a colleague and friend of Clement, the guy that wrote this letter, his name's Polycarp, and he uses the same phrase just a few years later in one of his letters to refute, uh, excuse me, to refer to the death of James. That's in um, Polycarp's letter to, uh, to the Philippians uh, chapter one, verse two. So you can look that up on your own. It uses the f same phrase letters, uh, suffered unto death to refer to being killed. It's talking about martyrdom specifically. So that, that's just called like good research, right? And um, I'm grateful for uh, Senor Sean McDowell for uh, getting us that stuff. But this is like, it's like, I don't think it's like 90 bucks for this book. Sean. But it's really good stuff though. Um, okay, here's another one. This is from Ignatius. Ignatius writing in his letter to the Smyrnians. Uh, by the way, Ignatius, there are some authentic letters and some not authentic letters of Ignatius. This is one of the authentic ones. And do I have a slide for it that I just didn't bring up? No, I doesn't. All right, so I'll just read it to you. In his letter to the Smyrnians, he writes, um, For myself, I am convinced and believe that even after the resurrection, he was in the flesh, speaking of Jesus, Indeed, when he came to Peter and his friends, he said to them, Take hold of me, touch me and see that I am not a bodiless ghost. And they at once touched him and were convinced, clutching his body and his very breath. For this reason, they despised death itself and proved its victors. This is, this is his language for saying it's like the exalting of martyrdom. He's like, look, they were killed. And he's, he's using euphemistic terms to exalt the fact that they were willing to die for their faith and for their faith, not just faith in general, specifically, according to Ignatius, these were willing to die, Peter and his friends, because they believed Jesus had bodily risen. Like he's building a case for the bodily resurrection from the martyrdom of the apostles. Um, this is kind of a big deal. This is uh, early second century. Let's see. 
There's also um, his letter to the Romans. He mentions um, another, uh, it's euphemistic, but it seems to be talking about how uh, Peter was killed and Paul was killed. And he's talking about how he too is hoping to endure to the point of being martyred, that he would be freed from this world and, and delivered into, uh, into eternity and glory. Um, another source, the Apocalypse of Peter. Um, uh, then there's the Ascension of Isaiah. I'm not going to go over all these. Uh, the Acts of Peter, the Apocryphon of James, the Dionysius of Corinth, um, Tertullian, and the Moratorium uh, Canon. These are all different sources that mention one way or another the martyrdom of Peter, and this is why it's just not really doubted. Um, even the later sources that start, maybe they're even embellishing or saying weird stuff, but they're drawing from a historical core, right? They're elaborating on something that actually happened. What they're elaborating on is the martyrdom of Peter, which is consistent with the Roman persecutions we saw. It's consistent with the persecution of Jesus. It's consistent with the persecution of believers and Peter even in the book of Acts. Think of Acts chapter 4 when they're beaten and they're told specifically, just quit saying stuff in the name of Jesus and we'll leave you alone. And they said, we, have to, we, can't, we can't stop it. You judge, you judge whether it's better to obey you or God. We can only proclaim what we have seen and heard. So the consistent evidence from history is that they're sincere. Briefly, I'll talk about Paul. Very briefly. Um, Paul went under constant persecution. We can actually look at a list of some of the things he went through in um, 2 Corinthians 11. Let's go there now. Um, verses 24 through 28, where he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fail? And I am not indignant. Um, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is this is Paul, right? It's consistent in Acts and in, in his letters as well. How he um, he's he's trying to get people on the right page when they deal with his persecution. In Philippians, he has to try to he's trying to do like therapy, like pastoral and counseling to them as they're bummed out because he's suffering, and he's like, "No, oh, don't be grieved. It's serving to further the gospel. I would lose everything and count it all lost for the sake of Christ." You can tell it's a guy who's trying to handle the fact that everybody knows he keeps suffering over and over again for the name of Jesus. So he has to talk to them about why it's okay and why it's worth it and why they should rejoice in it. Um, but the suffering itself is is just a given in the text. And if you're going to answer to this, oh, Mike's just saying for the Bible tells him so, that is terribly ignorant. I'm not trying to be rude to you, but you're, you're being really silly. Okay, this is like you can't approach history with like a SpongeBob mentality You've got to think about this stuff and like look at the actual evidence. And that, that's what we're trying to do here. Let's, let's reason together. I'm trying to build a case for why you should trust that when Peter, James, and Paul said they saw Jesus, they were sincere. They meant it. That's it. I'm just saying they really meant it. <clears throat> so Paul went under a lot of persecutions. We get another, another source in 2 Timothy, um, 2 Timothy 4. Verses 6 through 8. Let me put it up on your guys' screen for you. If you guys are following on the podcast, uh, thanks for joining on the podcast. Sorry that you don't get the visuals. You know, that's all up on YouTube, and you can search for the same thing on there if you want to see the visuals. Um, so 2 Timothy 4, 6, it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. So Paul's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm being poured out. My, my main goal is I want to run the race. I want to look back and say that was a life lived for Christ, worth living. But he's going to die. He's being poured out like a drink offering. Um, that's how he describes his life. Um, Incidentally, this is another place where Paul takes the um, sacrifices of the Old Testament and uses them metaphorically about the Christian life, which is interesting. Um, <clears throat> for those who have been following, um, I did I did a Hebrew Roots video. This is a side note, totally nothing about today's video. 
I did a Hebrew Roots video a little while back talking about what I consider to be problems with the Hebrew Roots movement. I talked about 119 Ministries in particular, and um, they made a response video of just a day or two ago. Maybe it was three days ago. Um, and I will try and get to that when I have time. You'll have to be very patient with me. It's it's going to get pushed way out because of just my schedule right now and getting ready for this debate with Matt Dillahunty next week. Um so uh, just know that that's there, and I do I do think I'll respond to it. And I really appreciate their really gracious attitude. Um, they handled it like brothers, and that makes me really want to engage with them. Like maybe just at some point, just get them on my channel just for a conversation. You know, um, if maybe I'm not trying to push them into anything, but it could be very fruitful for people who have questions about those issues and want to learn how to not divide um, while still trying to push for truth on those things. So. Here's Paul. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And um, and there's Moxie's tail. <sighs> All right. Um, there's another one uh, here. This is from First Clement as well. We, we read First Clement chapter 5, the first part of it. Um, we also read not only about Peter, but we read about Paul. So I, I guess I'll skip past that for now. Um, Ignatius talks about, that's another source about Paul's martyrdom. Ignatius talks about Paul's martyrdom. Um, according to Sean McDowell, he has eight sources within the first and second century that all refer to uh, the idea that Paul was killed for his proclamation of Christ. Um, uh, Polycarp, interestingly, Polycarp, writing in 110 AD, he mentions the sufferings of Paul and, quote, the rest of the apostles. This is interesting because there's a couple sources, early sources, early second century, that mentioned that all the apostles suffered. All of them. They all suffered. They all were persecuted. And that's consistent with all the rest of the data we have. All the arrows are pointing in the same direction here, okay? You're, if you wanted to be a Christian, especially a leader in the church, you were going to be persecuted. And who was a church leader? Who was the church leader in Jerusalem? G James, the brother of Jesus. You might be thinking, Peter, right? It was all, you know, but Peter at some point left. Uh, he was, and James was still there. Even when Peter was there, they both led, but it seems like James may have had a, uh, some, some more, um, I don't know, authority represented at least in the council in Acts 15. Um, so he was definitely a leader in Jerusalem, Acts 15. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, the earliest part of your entire New Testament, um, written probably probably the, the, the saying from it comes from within five years of the resurrection, most likely, maybe as late as seven years, um, maybe as early as two or three months. Uh, but here he says, mentions James. James as a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. It says... Um, that he was, Jesus was, you know, crucified, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So we have Peter, we have James, we have Paul, all specifically mentioned as those, Cephas is Peter, by the way, um, as those who saw Jesus after his death to prove and confirm that he had risen. And then they stayed as witnesses, traveling around, guaranteeing the witness, saying, look, it's true, see, it's true, we're eyewitnesses. And they died for that proclamation, proving that they meant it, they were genuine. So, what do we have for James? Well, we have uh, Hegesippus, uh, which is an interesting this is you're going to enjoy this, I think, if you're still with me, if you haven't fallen asleep yet. Um, Hegesippus is a guy who, um, or you know, he wrote stuff that's clearly legendary. It seems clear, right, that what I'm about to read to you, I'll, I'll see if I can put it on your screen. This is like legendary extra stuff, okay? Um, but you can't just ignore it. So I'm going to put some some images on on your screen here that we will look at. Oh, good, I can. Uh, oh. Good luck reading that. If you're on a cell phone, I don't know what you're going to do. Um, okay. So it says, uh, Hegesippus, they came therefore in a body to James and said, this is, this is speaking of the death of James, the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus. Um, we entreat thee, restrain the people for they are gone astray in their opinions about Jesus as if he were the Christ. We entreat thee to persuade all who have come and come hither for the day of the Passover concerning Jesus. For we all listen to thy persuasion. Since we, as well as all the people, bear the testimony that thou art just. He was called James the Just. So he'll be called this over and over again. And here's the enemies of the church. And they're saying to James, you're so just, James. We all bear. And this is part of the legendary tendencies, it seems, in here. Um, do, therefore, 
do thou therefore persuade the people not to entertain erroneous opinions concerning Jesus for all the people and we also listen to thy persuasion take thy stand then upon the summit of the temple that from the elevated spot thou mayest be clearly seen and thy words may be plainly audible to all the people for in order to attend the Passover all the tribes have congregated together and some of the Gentiles also okay that's the first section there's there's going to be a little bit more for us to read here uh, Hegesippus it seems um, yeah elaborated <laughs> what can I say um, but you can catch this and what you do is you read it and you go well, what's the historical core that led to the elaboration that's the question historians want to ask or I want to ask too so the aforesaid scribes and Pharisees accordingly set James on the summit of the temple so people could hear him right and cried aloud to him and said oh just one whom we are all bound to obey. Like, I don't, you know, do you really think that this is what they would say? Like, it doesn't seem very likely. It doesn't seem like they're behaving the way you would expect them to behave. Unlike in the Gospels, where scribes and Pharisees do exactly what you'd expect them to do, um, this is a little different. Um, and he, uh, yeah, who, who are all bound to obey, for as much as the people is in error and follows Jesus, the crucified, do thou tell us, what is the door of Jesus, the crucified? And he answered with a loud voice, Why ask ye me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come on the clouds of heaven. And so he's kind of quoting Jesus here when Jesus was, was uh, testifying before um, the high priest. And when many were, fu were fully convinced by these words and offered praise for the testimony of James and said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Then again he said, uh, this, the said Pharisees and scribes said to one another, We have not, we have not done well. <laughs> <laughs> they're saying this was a bad idea man we shouldn't have done this james is like convincing everyone and we just told him we all everyone has to obey him you get you get the legendary side of this right um so they go they say we've not done well in procuring this testimony to jesus but let us go up and throw him down that they may be afraid and not believe him and they cried and here's the very last little piece there's not much left there it is make it bigger for you well, i can make this one a lot bigger um they cast him down from the temple um, he, oh, no, okay, that's actually the last, last piece. Oops. Guys, I'm a tech genius. I want you to know this. It's not me. It's, it's computers that deliberately conspire against me. Okay. Um, they cried aloud and said, oh, oh, this just man himself is in error. Thus they fulfilled the scripture written in Isaiah. Let us away with the just man because he's troublesome to us. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their doings. So they went up and here's what they did to James. And they threw down the just man. And said to one another, let us stone James the just. Like, I doubt when they're stoning him, they're calling him James the just. But they, So they said, let's stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. But as he turned and knelt down, and kneeled down, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Where this harkens back to uh, Luke and Acts as well, that, that statement. Um, and while they were thus stoning him to death, one of the priests, the sons of Rechab, the son of Rechabim, to whom the testimony is borne by Jeremiah the prophet, began to cry aloud, saying, Cease, what do ye? The just man is praying for us. But one among them, one of the fullers, took the staff with which he was accustomed to wring out the garments, he died, and he hurled it at the head, and here's our, our last one, and he hurled it um, at the head of the just man, and so he suffered martyrdom, and they buried him on the spot, and the pillar erected to his memory still remains, close by the temple. This man was a true witness to both Jews and Greeks, that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so there's um, the James the Just stuff. Uh, the, the thing about this is, here's where, I, and I, here's why I wanted to bring and read that whole long thing. A lot of people are going to say, oh, this has signs of legendary development. We have to crumple it up and throw it into the garbage can. But you see, it doesn't have signs of total fabrication. Like James was a real guy. James, the brother of Jesus. We have lots of verification for his existence. Even that he was called James the Just, lots of other verification as well. So there's a historical core here. And F.F. Um, Bruce, who was the Ryland's professor of biblical criticism and exegesis at the University of Manchester in England, he summarized as he looked at this and said, what historical core is there in Hegesippus's uh, remarks about the death of James, the martyrdom of James? He said, when the embellishments are stripped off, the story amounts to this. The high priest and his colleagues, alarmed at the growth of, the mil of militant messianism, which threatened to embroil the nation with the Roman power to cause trouble between them and Rome, demanded that James should disown his Nazarene claim that Jesus was the Messiah. His refusal to do so led to his death. 
so even if you strip away the the sort of legendary stuff there's a historical core something led and gave rise to the legend something gave rise to it it just won't do to dismiss everything as unhistorical just like it won't do to say well the bible tell me so so i don't believe that you know like that doesn't make any sense that's not that's not how reality works um, that's just how bigotry works or, or biases work but there's more see because that's not even close to our only source about james josephus josephus that's a Another non-Christian guy, I got eh, stuff somewhere around here. Another non-Christian writer, uh, Roman historian who was also Jewish. He has a long, interesting story in his life. First century, though, he's a first century writer. And he tells of an event that happened when the new high priest in Jerusalem saw an opportunity in, with the absence of the Roman pro procurator, governor. The Roman governor was gone. And so now he had a chance to take out someone he hated. And the one he hated was a guy named James, the brother of Jesus. This is interesting. This is really interesting. So this is what Josephus actually says, um, which I don't think I put that in the thing, big thing. If I, oh yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, look at this. This is what Josephus wrote about James. And I, I should make it a little bigger because it's, it's about the size of my pinky right now. Okay, he says in Josephus's writings. Now keep this in mind. Josephus wrote about 500 words per year. Of, of data that he's writing about like he writes about a whole year of he just writes 500 words he's writing about this because it pertains to this one high priest how he was put into power taken out of power and what happened while there was in between two roman governors and all this stuff so he has a special opportunity ananus the high priest um to take out someone he doesn't like and the roman governor's gone actually one died and another one's on his way to replace him and he says, but this younger ananus who who as we told you already took the high priesthood was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, who were very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews, as we've already observed. When, therefore, Ananus was of this disposition, he thought, um, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead. That was the previous governor. And Albinus was but upon the road. That's the new governor. He's not around yet. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, or some of his companions. Um, that's alternate translation, uh, or some of his companions. So he, here's how he's introduced, right? Josephus, he, he introduces James, not first as James, but James as the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. Now, this is, there's nothing pious about this. This is just a fact of, of, of Josephus. He's just saying this happened. This is a guy. This is actually how Josephus introduces people in his writings. When he introduces someone new, he'll introduce them sometimes by association with a better known individual. So if the better known person's name comes first, so you'll understand who this person is. Um, and this is, this is, yeah, this is not disputed amongst scholars. It's not a debated passage. They don't think it was Christians added it or nothing. And you'll see why as we read on. So that's the first part. Um, so, and when he had formed an accusation, and let me get the next page. Sorry, I didn't have this ready earlier. It was just due to my own lack of ability to get it all done. Um, so when he formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, and such as were the most uneasy at the breach of the laws, they disliked what was done. And uh, they also sent to the king, Agrippa, desiring him to send Ananus to Ananus that he should not act or should act so no more. So it causes problems, and people are now, he's in trouble now with Agrippa, and um, as I read on, I'm looking at the clock here, so I won't read the whole thing, but as, as you can see on the screen there, uh, basically Ananus is removed from that position. He, he's, he no longer has um, that role anymore. Um, I'll just uh, put the last little slide from uh, Josephus there, and you guys can read it as I talk about the next thing. If I can get my thing to do the things I want my thing to do with the thing. So, so here we have Josephus who confirms that James, the, who was the brother of Jesus, a guy who was called the Christ, that he was in fact killed uh, when an opportunity arose and Ananus was able to do this. Why is that significant? Because it confirms that the historical core in Hegesippus is actually there. Okay, that's this, this, if you're just doing normal history, it seems like you're going to accept this. This is not going to be a problem for you. There's more though. Clement of Alexandria, um, 
he wrote about 150 to 215 AD is, is, is when he was when he lived. It's recorded in Eusebius and all that good stuff that most people don't care about. Anyway, Clement of Alexandria, he wrote, um, the Lord after his resurrected resurrection imparted knowledge to James the just and to John and Peter, and they imparted it to the rest of the apostles and the rest of the apostles to the 70 of whom Barnabas was one. But there were two Jameses, one called the just, who was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and was beaten to death with a club by a fuller and another who was beheaded. Interestingly, um, you're like, well, was he stoned or was he thrown down and beaten? Well, actually, um, according to the, to the Talmud in Sanhedrin 45a, when a person was stoned, they were first thrown off of, of a cliff or a wall or something like that, and then they were stoned. That was the stoning procedure. So we have other evidence for James as well. The first apocalypse of James, uh, the second apocalypse of James, pseudo-Clementines, um, recognitions, um, we have that. Um, and those are all about 200 AD, those sources. And they seem to confirm various streams of thought agreeing that James was martyred for his teaching about Jesus. And some would say um, Josephus' stuff doesn't count with James for the following reason. Because Josephus says he was uh, killed as a lawbreaker, a breaker of the law. Except we have to understand that this had to happen when, when the Romans were out of, out of town, so to speak. So it wouldn't be Roman laws. So it would be uniquely Jewish laws. Right, and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah is something they had said to stop doing. So then he can call them the breaker of their laws. It just, anyway, there's a lot more on that, but it seems silly to think otherwise. I'll give you a quote from uh, Daryl Bach, who's uh, he's a good qualified scholar, and he says about this Josephus calling him a lawbreaker. Um, he says, "What law was it James broke? Given his reputation within Christian circles as a Jewish Christian leader who was careful about keeping the law, that's his reputation." It would seem likely that the law had to relate to his Christological allegiances and a charge of blasphemy. This would fit the fact that he was stoned, which was the penalty for such a crime, and parallels how Stephen was handled as well, talking about how Stephen in the book of Acts was killed, uh, stoned. Uh, they would call him a lawbreaker, but he was just proclaiming the truth of Christ. Um, so there's a lot more I could give you guys on that, but I think, I think what you're getting is this. There's lots of sources that promote specifically Paul James, Peter, their martyrdom, and their continual sufferings. In other words, they meant it. That's all we're saying. Now, what about sources that say they recanted? There isn't a single one. There isn't one source from history that suggests that any of the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, let alone Peter, James, or Paul, that any of them recanted. And we have good reason to think that critics would use these sources if they existed. You see, in the second century, we, we have these critics of Christianity attacking Christianity with everything they can. And we have writings about the arguments back and forth. I mean, if I read an, an apologetics book like this one, I find out what the skeptics are saying about the topic because he has to engage with those guys. And so when I read about like Justin Martyr's apology, I read these things from the second century. I'm hearing what the accusations against the church were because they have to engage with those things. And nobody, none of these uh, attackers, you know, or people trying to, to uh, debunk Christianity, none of them even suggested that these apostles uh, recanted and they would have loved to use that kind of stuff. Um, so there's, there's not a single tradition or historical document to suggest otherwise. And there's several different streams of history suggesting that they did, in fact, uh, have the willingness to die for their faith. Um, there's other lines, too, pointing to their sincerity. Um, that I'll, Maybe I'll make a video about that some other time. Uh, just for the sake of time, I want to move forward and get to your guys' questions today. So hopefully those can come in real quick here. Um, so my conclusion is this. Peter, Paul, and James were sincere. That's it. This is like all I'm trying to establish. They meant it when they said they saw Jesus alive. Those were genuine claims. Peter really believed it. Paul really believed it, James really believed it, and they're all three very important in our case for the resurrection of Jesus. Does that mean that they saw Jesus alive? Well, I think that we will then go to um, the number of appearances and the nature of, uh, of hallucination theories and stuff like that. That's like a whole other line of thinking that we can talk about at a future time. But the idea is this, um, they were sincere, and so you can't use the conspiracy or they lied about it um, you know, what is it? Uh, alternative explanation for the resurrection. You just can't use it. It's, it's got to be off the table. It just, the evidence doesn't support it. Now, some would respond and go, Mike, who cares if they're sincere? 9-11 bombers are sincere. The 9-11 bombers were very sincere about their, uh, about their, uh, their religion. Yeah, but the thing is, they weren't eyewitnesses, were they? 
They were just indoctrinated. We're talking about eyewitnesses. So I'm not saying they were sincerely indoctrinated. I'm saying they're sincere about seeing Jesus alive after his death. And that that brought them from a place of fleeing and like Peter denying Jesus. because He denied Jesus. Like, why would you make that up? <laughs> Peter's the leader in your church and you're going to make up that he denied Christ? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, in fact, John seems to be dealing with the fact that he had denied Christ at the end of the book of John to bring him back, to restore him. So he de- denied, they fled, they turned. John, uh, or Paul, uh, James, excuse me, James, the brother of Jesus, he didn't believe in Jesus in the Gospels. Why would you make that up? James didn't believe in him. That's embarrassing. And yet he believes he saw Christ. First Corinthians 15, the earliest account of resurrections tells us that James was one of the witnesses and he died still proclaiming the risen Christ. Paul, he was a persecutor of the church. And the thing that turned him around, according to Paul, was he saw Jesus. Now, if these guys are sincere, that's a really good piece of evidence, uh, building the case that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So there's, um, oh gosh, there's a lot more I could talk about. And I wanted to, but I want to get to your guys' questions. So I'm just going to go straight to it. We'll take your guys' questions. Um, Let me pull that up. Okay. From Miss T., um, she says, uh, how could someone explain this to someone who points out non-Christian religions whose members are willing to die for their beliefs? And I'll, I'm sure you asked this question before I just explained that. Yeah. So I, I would actually say this, this evidence, just to, to make it really clear, it works perfectly well. You see, I am being consistent when I say that um, a Muslim bomber who flies a plane into a building or any bomber who flies a plane into a building is sincere in their beliefs. That's all I'm saying. They're sincere. Now, I have another piece of evidence for the disciples, for the apostles that I don't have for those bombers, which is the bombers are not eyewitnesses. They're, they're just, um, they're sincerely, you know, flying a plane into a building, but they're not eyewitnesses to confirm that the claims are true about Muhammad. No, they're not eyewitnesses. Whereas the apostles are eyewitnesses. So they're sincere eyewitnesses, which is really different. Um, Peanut Warrior says, what would you say to those who say that the Christian persecution complex isn't legit for today? I've seen many videos talk about uh, talk on the subject, especially about the God's Not Dead series. Um, well, this is seems like a very it, it's it's related, but it's kind of a different issue. Um, we could say that Christians were persecuted heavily in the early first centuries, and then we could say that nothing ever happened after that. Christians aren't even persecuted today at all. This is just it doesn't relate to the evidence for the resurrection. Um, but on the flip side, I see two problems. I see some. T- some Christians who want to turn everything into persecution. My video got, you know, demonetized on, on YouTube and I could have said that was persecution, but I also recognize YouTube is just demonetizing all kinds of stuff right now, you know, but yet there are those who are really being persecuted and where, whether, and maybe it's soft persecution. Maybe it's like, you know, one of the students in my, in my uh, church, he says, I want to write a, a paper. And the, the, the teacher says, write a paper on anything you want, any figure from history who has inspired you except Jesus. I'm not kidding. This happened over at uh, Mayfair High School in Bellflower, California. You know, you could write a paper on anything you want, but it can't be about Jesus. And so he had, a, he had a, one of his students, fellow students, who wrote about uh, Muhammad and how Muhammad was the inspiration. And that was allowed, but he was not allowed to write about Jesus. Um, that kind of little stuff happens all the time. Um, and, uh, and then there's the real extreme stuff. Per- Christian persecution is actually, if you actually look up statistics, it's worse now than it has been in hundreds of years. It's really terrible. Actual pers- murder, uh, mayhem, butchering of people. Um, it's happening all over the place. It doesn't get reported in the news very often. Uh, but I don't think that we differentiate between um, sort of the soft persecution versus like murder uh, too often. Okay, so a uh, question from Audra Addison. Is Revelation 6.11 referring to martyrs or all believers? Let's take a look at that passage. Revelation 6.11 says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were uh, to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, I I don't know. Um, I, I think that it has, I'll put it this way, I think it has application to all uh, martyrs in that we have like this future glory coming and this comfort from the Lord. But I, I don't know that it's specific enough for me to answer. At least I can't answer that question. So sorry. Sorry, Audra. I hate to tell you like an, an I don't know um, on that. Um, perhaps if I've been recently studying Revelation, I might have a little more content for you. 
Um, from Star Welters says, uh, I know it's off topic and I'm sorry, but could you ask Mike if he'd ever do a video on the global local flood? Um, I definitely would consider it. Uh, I don't think I'm qualified right now to do it. And so I, I, I don't try to weigh in on things I'm not qualified to do. And I, I'll say where I'm at right now, at least my understanding of it. From, here's the thing. it's It seems silly for me to be like, here's my opinion. And yet I won't give you any reason to establish my opinion. So I'm just asking you to like, trust me because it's my opinion. Th that I don't like doing. I like building a case like I did in today's video. Um, and I, I don't know if I can build a case right now. I'll say this as a, as a, uh, I was a, a global flood person for a very long time. And now I'm a little bit on the fence and it's not, it's not because of, uh, really the archeology span of all that stuff. It's more because um, of some of the textual arguments. And that's what interests me the most. Um, like how is, you know, the whole world, uh, I think it's Cole Eretz. Like how is that used throughout the text of Genesis? Um, so I, I don't have the answers to those questions. I'm not at all doubting the text of scripture. I'm asking, am I interpreting this right? Or have I kind of assumed too much? And um, maybe I can come back to that sometime with better answers. Our wholesome home says, uh, what do you, um, what do you think the present day equivalent of Christian persecution uh, today is today in the U S obviously the other places around the world, it's way worse. Yeah, it is worse than other places around the world. Um, Christian persecution in the U S is like a slow, is like a slow moving snowball. <laughs> um, it's just gradually increasing very slowly, right? Um, public sentiment, um, which makes people feel like the dehumanizing of Christians, um, and not like it doesn't happen to other groups as well, but it definitely, it, it does happen and it has been increasing. And like, um, the stuff where someone gets, um, hated, I mean, hated with vitriol, hated because they, they say they think homosexuality is sinful. Like just that, just right now, like I just triggered someone with rage just by saying this and those kind of like trigger things where people just freak out and way overreact to basic Christian teaching. That's what leads to persecution. And that stuff seems like it's increasing. Um, and I wonder where the tipping point is. So, um, Wesley Teal says, Mike, have you read David team's book? Um, Tyndale, the man who gave God an English voice. If so comment, no, I have not read that. Sorry. I, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know it. Um, I know he's Tyndale's a Bible translator, but uh, yeah, couldn't tell you much. Uh, Angela Juarez says, uh, why did Jesus say he went to prepare a place for us if our eternal home is here on a renewed earth? Um, well, we have a temporal place that's with God. And my understanding of, of this currently is um, that <clears throat> previously saints who died would be gathered together in like a waiting location um, that Jesus refers to as Abraham's, Abraham's bosom or being gathered with Abraham. You have the same faith that Abraham hit, had and you're gathered with him but that after the death and resurrection of Christ, that place is in the presence of God. So you're right there with the Lord. You're in the very presence of God. That's my understanding of the, of the, um, what happens after we die so that that place is no longer a, a, like a waiting place. And so now our waiting place is with the Lord. So Jesus went, he prepared a place for us and we will be with him forever. And the with him will be temporarily in, in the heavenly realms. And then when he establishes the new heaven and new earth, the with him will be on the new heaven and new earth. And we read about that in revelation where the new heavens and new earth have the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven from God and God is with them and he is the light. And there's, there's this witness. Um, it's all relational stuff. So that's my understanding of it, Angela. Um, let me see what time is it? We're one hour and three minutes as far as our, our stream goes. Let me guys, let me do a little, uh, a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of updates on some things before I, I <clears throat> close off today's, uh, live stream. The reason why I'm doing this right now is because I'm prepping for a debate with Matt Dillahunty. Many of you guys know this. The debate is coming on uh, Capturing Christianity. That's the name of the YouTube channel. You could just look it up. And the debate is going to be on April 11th. Um, I think it's like 5 or 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And um, I, I hope that you'll take the chance to watch it. I really hope for your prayers as I'm getting ready for it and trying to, trying to present a thoughtful and persuasive case for believing in the resurrection of Jesus and answering objections from Matt Dillahunty, who's made a career of objecting to Christianity, it seems. Um, so, so I do appreciate your guys, your guys prayers on that. Um, and that's why I'm presenting the content I'm doing today. This is all just part of my prep for the debate. We will probably not talk for more than five minutes, if that, on the topic of the martyrdom of the apostles but this is all the homework that goes into it. <laughs> this is all the, all the head work that goes into it. And 
Um, I, I hope that it's a blessing to you guys. So I'm going to have like a resurrection playlist on my channel that will have content that might help you if you're having these discussions and debates where people challenge you and you can have sort of a resource to look at and say, look, 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 we have for, you know, for the martyrdom of the apostles, we'll take three who are key witnesses in our case for the resurrection. And we'll say we have lots of different lines of evidence, different, not all streaming from one source, but different lines of evidence that show that these guys were willing to really die for their proclamation that Jesus rose. Meaning that if you say they were liars or you say they didn't say it in the first place, that's a little silly. And that's pretty much it because we're building an evidential case and evidential cases do require quite a lot of evidence. So um, thank you guys so much. If you love this ministry and you want to help me, I'm going full-time online ministry right now. I'm still at my church. I'll put up a video explaining all the details and ins and outs of all that. But but if you want to support it, go to BibleThinker.org and you can uh, click, I put a donate button up there that if you want to support this ministry, um, that's, that's how I'm going to continue doing this stuff full-time, devoting the hours of prep it takes every week to do these things. And um, I hope it's a blessing to you. If you haven't checked it out, I have tons of content on my channel, Bible studies. Um, it's all just, it's all free. It's everything I do is if, as long as possible, I always keep it free um, so that it will just bless as many people as it can. And uh, thank you guys for being here. Have a fantastic day. I'm looking for the button to stop the stream. Thanks to my mods. Appreciate you guys being there. Oh, it's nice to see your guys' kind messages in there. Take care. See you next Tuesday.